want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 4. We are going to be looking at the passage that Steve read earlier in Matthew chapter 14. But I kind of want to give a larger context of what Matthew is doing in his gospel here. And so Matthew chapter 4, I want you to look at verse 18 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 says this, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Now look at verse 19. And he said unto them, Follow me. Look at this next phrase. And I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Father, our hearts have already been ministered with the songs that we have sang. As Father, we have celebrated Christ. We celebrated his name and what he has done for us through the songs. And now, Father, the ultimate act of worship is when we come and we sit under your word to hear your voice. And so, Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and, Father, do your work, the work of encouraging where encouragement needs to happen, the work of conviction where conviction needs to happen, and the work of salvation, perhaps for those who have never come to Christ. And Father, we will make sure at the end of the day that you receive all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus calls his first disciples, he says, follow me, and then he makes the statement, I, and notice what he says, I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, pull up your boots, string them a little tighter, and become fishers of men. He says, I will make you fishers of men. And one of the questions when I come to a text like that, I ask the question, how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus work into their lives or into our lives to mold us and make us who he wants us to be? And the answer, as you begin to follow through the Gospels, the answer to that is that Jesus is going to open their eyes so that they can see this truth. And this is probably the important truth, is that Jesus is going to open their eyes to see who He is. You see, following Christ and going into his service, ultimately hinges on your understanding and faith in who Christ is. Following Christ is not blind faith, but a faith that is rooted deeply into the character and the work of Christ. And what you do when you follow 
through the book of Matthew, there's roughly five stories in this book where Jesus is going to specifically focus on his disciples and focus on their faith. One of the stories that we're looking at this morning is that story in Matthew chapter 14, where the disciples are put into a situation that is out of their control. And many times it's in that kind of a situation that Christ works. And that's what he does in our lives. I mean, think about your, your normal day, right? We go through our lives and we think that we have everything figured out. We kind of got everything in our box. We know how everything ought to run. And then out of nowhere, wham, something hits us that's chaotic. And we realize that we're really not in control. And at that moment, when that happens, what you really believe about and what you really believe about the Bible comes to the forefront. And Jesus puts us in these kind of situations to draw us and to root us deeper into who he is. And so let me have you turn to Matthew 14, because that's what's going on in this story. The disciples are caught in a storm, and through that storm, Jesus is going to help them to understand who he is. Now let's look, how does Jesus work in their lives through the storms? First, notice that Christ willed them into the storm. He put them into the storm. Look at verse 22 with me, if you would. It says this, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. Note that the story actually begins with a sense of urgency. Uh, the word constrained is actually very strong in the Greek language. It's got the idea of to compel or to throw into. Jesus is compelling and constraining his disciples into the bolt, and then he sends all the multitude away. Now here's a question. Why the urgency? Well, notice what has just happened in the story. Remember about a year ago, there was this great message preached from this pulpit. At least I think it was a great message. I'm the one that preached it, by the way. <laughs> it was on the feeding of the 5,000. That's what Jesus has just done. He has just finished feeding the 5,000. And I think John gives us a little bit of help on this account because after he got done feeding the 5,000, remember what the multitude wanted to do in John's account of John 6? They wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. Now, I think you can understand a little bit of what's going on in their minds, right? I mean, here's Susan, here's Mikey. They've been kind of watching Jesus at a glance from a distance. 
And, you know, and they're kind of watching him, and they're going, you know, this, this guy, he can heal. This guy, he can cast out demons. I mean, he gives free food. We just ate of bread and fish. Perhaps, and this is how John gives it, perhaps this is the guy that is talked about in the Old Testament, this prophet who's going to come and deliver us. And I bet if he becomes king, he can deliver us from those horrible Romans and bring back the glory days of King David and King Solomon. And so you can just imagine as that murmur is going around, as the thoughts are going, and probably even the disciples are getting wrapped up into that thinking also. And so what does Jesus do? He compels them, constrains them to get into the boat. Why? Because the disciples have to learn is that the king that God is given to them isn't one who rides into Jerusalem on a white steed or a white stallion to sit on a throne, but a king who comes riding on a donkey to go to a cross. The followers of this king are not those who reign at this time, but are those who take up the cross and follow him. I mean, everyone wants a king that will make life easy, right? I mean, you can just see that even in our nation. Give us one who gives us freedom. Give us one who gives us free money. Give us one who can provide. But to follow this king, Jesus, means to put a trust in him in whom the world despises and the world rejects. It is the one to have him reign over you in every area of your life, when the, when the world around you cries out for freedom and anarchy. I mean, today, if you start talking about how Christ reigns over you, and he reigns over your finances, he reigns over your family, he reigns over your sex life, he reigns over your identity, whether you're a male or a female, you start talking about that today into today's contemporary world, you will be termed with all hateful kinds of descriptions. You're a bigot, you're prejudiced, you're racist. But that's what it means to follow this kind of a king. I lovingly obey him, and I follow him no matter where he leads. And at this point, where is he leading the disciples? He's leading the disciples right in to the heart of a storm. You see, Christ put them there. There's an idea out there that if you follow Christ, you'll never face hardships, you'll never face hurts. But if you follow Christ, you will have wealth, you will have health, and you will have prosperity. And folks, that is so foreign uh, to the Bible. You who follow me will suffer, Christ says. Remember, back in South Africa, a man who was kind of hit and miss in our church, he had a uh, position, a big management position, made, made quite a bit of money, 
Eventually, he lost that position and came to me and he said, what do I do, Pastor? And I said, well, let's start meeting twice a week. We begin to do a Bible study together. We begin to pray. I'll never forget one time as we were meeting, uh, he made this statement. He said this. He says, now that I am obeying God, because he knew before that he really wasn't following God. He said, but now that I'm obeying God, I know that he is going to bless me with another high-paying job. And I looked at him and I said, really? I said, but what if he doesn't bless you with that? What if you're in the car and you're riding with your family and all of a sudden you're in a horrible accident and one of your family members is tragically injured or killed? I said, will you still follow him? Because that's what Christ calls us to. It's a taking up the cross. It's, it's not following him when things are good, and then when things get bad, go, well, I guess I'm done with that journey. No, it's following him into the heart of the storm. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that kind of thinking. And so Jesus wills them into this storm, but then notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 23. It says, And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. Notice twice in the text, we are told that Jesus is alone, and what does he do? He spends time praying. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I'll let you maybe draw some of the application for your own personal life, but here's just an application for me. If Jesus, the God-man, felt the need to spend much time in prayer, why do I think I don't need to pray? If Jesus, as busy as he was, felt that he needed to spend early hours or late hours rising to pray. Why do I not think I need to pray? I think later on, or actually earlier on in this story, but I think later on uh, when you get to the Gospel of Luke, this is what the disciples see, and they say, well, Jesus does something that we don't often do. And so they come to him and say, teach us to pray. Now, in Mark's account, which I think is very helpful, in Mark's account of this, we are told that while Jesus prayed, he was watching the disciples in the storm. I think it's a beautiful picture of the intercessory work of Christ. As he's praying, his eye is on the disciples, his eye is on us, and his eye is on the Father. What a beautiful example. And I think when you get to the book of Hebrews, what is Jesus doing today? His eye is on you and his eye is on the Father while he prays for you. So Jesus, who willed them into the storm, understands where they're at, but he takes the time to spend with his Father even in the midst of that. And so Jesus willed them into the storm. Secondly, Christ controls the timing of the storm. So he wills them, 
and now he controls the timing. Look at verse, look at verse 24. It says, but the ship was now. So here's Jesus praying, and then you have that little word, uh, verse 24, but or now. It's a sharp contrast. Why Jesus is in the mountain, communion with the Father. Where are the disciples? But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Just to give you a little of idea of the Sea of Galilee there, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. But the hills around, the hills where Jesus was at, is 1,400 feet above sea level. So it's a 2,100-foot drop. And when a little wind or a storm would go through and sink into that valley, it would really begin to churn up those waters, somewhat like if you took a small bowl and just got the water whipping. Or sometimes like what my kids do in our small swimming pool. That's what's happening in this, this little Sea of Galilee. So the storm comes and the waters begin to churn. So what are some of the characteristics of the storm that they're going through? It's chaotic. They're uncertain. They don't know what's going to happen. They're out in the midst of the sea, rolling for as hard as they, as hard as they could. There's unpredictability. It's violent. Now think of the Think of the sea. It's deceptive. It's dark. You can't see very far below the surface. It's a place of mystery because it hides what's underneath. In fact, in the Bible, the sea is generally used in a negative image. Nothing good comes from the sea. We lived on the ocean, and I think one of the stupidest things I've ever did was watch a video on YouTube of cameras about three feet in the ocean where people were walking, and they showed all of these sharks going right by. And I say it wasn't very smart for me to do that living on the ocean, but it's mysterious. And so here they are. They're in this sea, a place of violence, and they're rolling. And so imagine as they're doing this, what state do you think the disciples are in? We'll see this in a moment, but by the time Christ comes to them, it's already early in the morning. They are tired. We'll find in a second they're fearful. They have no control. There's a sense of uncertainty. Uh, they're alone. Jesus isn't with them. And they're straining against the oars and probably feeling that their work is futile. In a moment, they're going to think they see a spirit, and they're going to be terrified. You ever been in a storm like that? You ever seen maybe a real storm? Remember the year right before we left South Africa, we got what's called these bergwinds, very hot, hot winds that come through, and we had had a drought uh, for a number of, uh, of months, and this bergwind came through, and I remember waking up at about 3 in the morning thinking my roof was coming off. I went outside, trees were swaying, branches were down everywhere. And then at about 5 in the morning, we were told that a fire that was a small spark because of this bergwind had got out of control. And this fire began to rapidly, within uh, really within seconds, 
begin to just destroy. One of our families who was in that said he got report that a fire was starting to stir. Went outside and he said, I looked, I looked across the valley and he said, we could see a little bit of a fire going on. He said, I went in my house. Five minutes later, I came back out and it was already on our property. That's how fast it was blowing. Uh, their house burned down. A number of people have died. Whole cities. Uh, the city of Nizna, where we lived, was evacuated. Thousands of people. Uh, there were some people who uh, were in a small communities living right on the ocean, and boats had to come in and move them out into a different area because they could not travel uh, by, by road. And that destroyed. Well, that's what a storm. Well, maybe you've gone through it not physically, but maybe you've gone through some kind of storm. A loss of a loved one. Think of this last year, I was telling someone, I said, I pray that we lose no one else. This last year in our church has been hard. Sicknesses, coronavirus, and all of a sudden these storms that are chaotic hit us. We get tired. We feel like we have no control. We oftentimes feel alone. And I want you to notice, how long did this go on? Look at verse 25. And it says, In the fourth watch, in the mist, in the fourth watch of the night. That word fourth night is anywhere from 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. I want you just to think about this for a moment. If Jesus sent the multitudes away, uh, when we lived in Zambia, no electricity many times. Uh, it was already dark by 8, 8.30. We had to have candles, or maybe we had a small little battery uh, that would power uh, some kind of a lamp. Uh, but usually by 8, 8.30, it was already dark. We would be going to bed around 8.30. And I don't know if it was that dark at that time, but let's just suppose that Jesus sent the multitude after feeding them at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, and now it's 3 or four, or five, or six in the morning. How long did he let this go on? He's up in the mountains, six, seven, eight, nine hours. We're not told how long, but we do know that for some time the disciples are struggling. Now, what do you think is going on in the minds of the disciples? When you're going through trials, when you're going through the storms, what goes on in your mind? Why is this happening? Where's, where's Jesus? Why did he tell us to get into this boat? Didn't he know? I mean, the last time we were in a storm, he was asleep. He got up, he made one phrase, one statement, and the storm ceased. Where is he? Doesn't he care? I don't know what they're thinking, but I know that's the thoughts that come to my mind at times. And so why does Jesus allow them to go through the chaos of the storm for so long? Again, I think Mark helps us. Mark has a little statement at the end of this story. And the statement is this. They did not consider the miracle of 
the loaves. In essence, they did not understand the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't put two and two together. Who is Jesus? They didn't consider who this one was who could create bread or multiply bread and multiply fish. They didn't consider that. They didn't take the time to ponder that. They wanted to make him king. And so right after that story, Jesus allows them to go through the chaos of the storm to allow them to consider and ponder who he truly is. And that brings us to our last point. Jesus comes to them on the storm. Jesus comes to them on the storm. Look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, what did Jesus do? He went unto them walking on the sea. Now, do you think they expected him to come like that? Do you think they expected to see this guy kind of just sitting out there, just kind of riding the waves, going off? What is Jesus signifying by that? Here's the chaos of the storm. Here's the sea and the waves raging. And yet, what's Jesus doing? He's walking on top of it. In the chaos of the storm, who controls the storm? Who's above the storm? Who can't be touched if he chooses not to by the storm? Which, by the way, just make the connection to the cross. Did Jesus have to die? He could have chose to override that, couldn't he? He's got control. So here he is. He's walking on top of it. And what are their reactions? Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. They were fearful because they thought it was a spirit. And by the way, that was very common in their thinking, is that when a spirit uh, a spirit from the realm of the dead, which was uh, notable on the sea. Stories would, would go through the fishermen of, of uh, stories of spirits on the sea, and it meant that death was coming. And so you can imagine they've come to the end of themselves. This is the end. We're dead. Here's a spirit. And at that moment, what does Jesus do? It says in verse 27, But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Jesus says, be of good cheer. And actually, the better translation is, be of good cheer, I am. It's the I am statement that Christ uses. And for you who are astute, know your Old Testament already, you're making a connection to the I am, to the name that God gave Moses back in Exodus 3.14. What is Jesus saying? Jesus of the New Testament, who controls the chaos of the sea, is connected to the God of the Old Testament. And perhaps the disciples, as they pondered this later on, were thinking back to Job, 
where Job is speaking in Job 9.8, and he says this about God. He alone spreads out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. And so the disciples see him walking on the water. He has power over it. And he says, be of good cheer. Be of courage. I want you to notice something, and I don't have time to press this. Notice that he says, be of good cheer, but the storm has not ended. You know, storms ending, okay, now you can be of good cheer. No, the storm is still raging. Why can they be of good cheer? Because who's with them in the midst of the storm? It's Christ. I think that's important. Christ doesn't always stop the storm. He doesn't always make the peace in that storm or bring peace to the storm. But he can give peace to your heart in the midst of that storm. Why? Because he is with you. Now, what did he want his disciples to understand? What did they miss concerning the feeding of the 5,000? What did they finally get? Look at verse 33. It says in verse 33, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of what? Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. You see, only God can make bread. Only God can multiply the fish. Only God can walk on the sea. The last time they were in a storm and Jesus was sleeping and he got up and he rebuked the wind, their question was, what kind of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Well, finally they come truly. This is the Son of God. So here, I think, is the big theme of the text. Here's the point. Jesus wants to deepen our faith in the knowledge of him. He is the Son of God. And at times, to do that in your life, he will allow you to go through the chaos of the storms. Let me close with just two applications. Do you know this, Jesus? Maybe you're sitting here this morning. You go, well, that, that's, that's a good thought. That's a good idea. But if you come to that saving knowledge, that saving relationship to him, he is the eternal son of God who creates bread, creates fish, controls the sea. And as the son of God, and this is how Matthew will Fill out this story of what does it mean to be the Son of God. As the Son of God, He alone can do what no one else can do. He can die for your sins. Deliver you from the power of darkness to the kingdom of light. And when you, by faith, turn to Him, He promises to do that very thing. He promises to deliver you and save you. Folks, 20, start preaching 28, 26 years. 
it's never shocked me in a congregation this size, people sitting and they've never trusted in the Lord. Let me encourage you, have you come to him? And then secondly, as followers of Christ, we will go through the chaos of the storms of life. That's going to happen. But here's the promise. Christ, the Son of God, has promised to be with us. The one who died for you, who gave his life, the one who resurrected, has promised to be with you and to uphold you. Now, this week, as I was studying this, one of the uh, songs that kept going on in my head, it's a newer song. It's a song that says, I will hold you fast, and, or he will hold you fast. And the last stanza, I think, really captures the message of the gospel. And I think captures uh, this picture And the song, the last stanza says this, For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, when he comes at last, he will hold me fast, He will hold me fast. Why? For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son and revealing to us that he is the Son of God who came to die on a cruel cross to do what we could never do for ourselves, to deliver us from our sins. Father, I don't know what storms we're going through. Father, I pray that we would anchor deeply and be rooted deeply into who Christ is. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name.